Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. As many of you would have expected, with the NBA draft having just occurred, wanted to talk with Sam Vecini, longtime friend of the show and senior writer for The Athletic, about the NBA draft and college basketball, about the draft that just transpired, went in a lot of different directions, as you would expect for the conversation between the two of us, starting with the big trade with the Mavericks and the Hawks, but moving through numerous other things, including his favorite picks of the second round, some of the team building stuff, go in a lot of different directions. Really enjoyed the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Hims. You can go to forhims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash real and get a trial month for $5 while supplies last, which is awesome. True Car, you can buy newer used cars from them. And also our podcast survey, go to podcastone.com and you can click on the survey banner. It's probably the easiest way to do it. And you can support Real Gem Radio that way. Conversation runs about an hour 20. Really enjoyed it. Goes in, as I said, a lot of different directions. Hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Danny, it is a pleasure to come on. I have... Uh, been working essentially since 7 a.m. yesterday, uh, just with a quick five-hour nap in the middle there overnight after the draft ended. It's finally over, though. We've gotten through the 2018 NBA draft, and we are moving on to the 2019 NBA draft. Like Bill Belichick, we have uh, we're on to 2019. And I'd fe- I guess I'd feel more sympathy for you if you'd written 15,000 words, but you've only written 13,000 since the draft ended. So. Let's let's add to that in terms of the speaking total now. And recorded a podcast already on That's my true. own podcast. So really, it's just been overkill, probably. <laughs> hey, it's, it's good content. People enjoy it. So you, you work with that. So I, I think for me, where the conversations on this draft will go in the long term, I mean, obviously, we don't know how good these guys are going to be, is yeah. the dual decisions re- regarding the same trade with Dallas and Atlanta. I'll give this the framing that I'm seeing this through, which is I see a lot of parallels to the big trade in the 2017 draft when the team that had the better pick, that case it was Boston, made a bet on their board and got a meaningful asset from a team that had a different set of preferences and had a greater sense of urgency due to those preferences. And so they moved up and got somebody who is a, you know, a higher ceiling player, but you know, it is an open question which one of them will be better. Do you see it kind of the same way? Yeah, I do. Personally, I think that if I was Atlanta, and you know, I'm not Atlanta, Atlanta very clearly, I think had, I don't know this for a fact, but just given the way this went down, I think they had Trey Young higher on their board than Luka Doncic. And they had him higher on their board. You're right. They made a bet on that. Personally, for me, it's not a bet I would have made. I think that the floor of Luka Doncic is much higher than the floor of Trey Young. And I don't really see their ceilings as being particularly different. Like, there's a non-zero chance that both of them are Hall of Famers. Uh, They both have that kind of upside. They are ridiculous. But to me, the the difference here is the certainty that you're getting that you know Luka Doncic is going to be able to step into the NBA and be a starter, in my opinion. Trey Young, there are going to be some defensive deficiencies basically immediately. And I don't think that a protected first round pick one through five in a week 2019 NBA draft is enough for me to give up that certainty. I find the protection on this pick pretty interesting because 
as we move into the 2019 and lottery reform that comes with that, I don't know how far you would have to fall to feel comfortable with a, a top five pick, you know, to get into that protection. I think you'd probably have to fall pretty far. So I think Dallas is, you know, we'll see what they do with the center position. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Doncic, I think what what is important about this and what I find so interesting is it's the importance of size. And this is not necessarily size like, oh, let's value the centers or anything like that. It's just that right. the bust potential of, you know, neither one of these guys is a great athlete, for especially, you know, for anything else. Like the bust potential of a good passer who's six foot eight is very different from the bust potential of a, you know, similar-ish level athlete who is six foot one. Yeah. just because you can hide bigger players easier defensively. That's just the reality of the situation. They can play on the weak side of the wing. Um, You know, they can take on the easier matchups. Obviously, in today's NBA, with the way that teams hunt mismatches, you might get taken advantage of a little bit more than you used to be able to get taken advantage of. But at the same time, I am a big, big believer that size is a huge differentiator when it comes to being able to hide players defensively. And we saw that all around, not only the NBA, but college basketball over this past year, that it is easier. I mean, college, you can use zone defenses like Duke did, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. But yeah, with Doncic, also he competes defensively more consistently than I saw from Trey Young. So you can give him, you know, the other team, if let's say he is on the lower end physically of what he could be, give him the worst perimeter guy and he'll do okay you know he can yeah he'll, he'll survive that and trey young also the limitation of a smaller guy who is weak defensively is it's so much more obvious for teams to attack them and i i've seen this sometimes with james harden where it's a little bit weird to attack a two guard like some some teams don't yeah. run small small pick and rolls everything like that well if if your weak point is a one everybody knows how to attack that even the worst coach team in the nba as long as they have a point guard that can actually play basketball they can go after that and so that is a little bit of a concern for me with Trey Young. I like the way that you talked about it in terms of ceilings and floors because Young has this super high ceiling. I mean, the, he is coming into the league at exactly the right time where he isn't the trailblazer. He is the guy who is kind of in Curry's wake in terms of, okay, this is how we can use that. He also went to a general manager who was in the front office when Stephen Curry was rising to prominence. So there, there are ways- Golden, that- the rise of Stephen Curry. Hey, that that's another good book. It's not mine, but it's another good book. But yeah, it's I I think that Trey Young there is a, a way for him to succeed offensively. To be sure, I mean, if and it all centers around something. I think you and I had the last time we talked on the podcast was before I watched footage on him, and what you and I talked about offline was the pull up shot is the absolute key to Trey Young's game. And if he he is confident in it, the mechanics of it are good. If that shot goes in, then. If he can do that involving screens, teams are going to have to game plan for him. And really, creation offensively is the centerpiece of the modern NBA. That is the big differentiator between guys, unless you are as good defensively as the best players in the league at whatever position you are, or you bring some other special skill, it's really about creating reliable offense. Yeah, no, that's no question. And being able to do it efficiently, it's not even just creating the shot. You have to be able to finish the shot. And that's something that, you know, you mentioned with Trey, the big thing that I always bring up that 
I think the similarity is with him and Stephen Curry is their ball pickup uh, whenever they're going to go up for their pull-up jump shot is so quick. It's so smooth. It's uh, It makes it a lot easier for him, and it makes it such a quick trigger that defenders really have to be paying attention at all times, and that makes it very, very difficult for them. So I look at a guy like a Trey Young, and I understand why people compare him to Stephen Curry. Uh, I think that – at the same age, Trey Young is better than what Stephen Curry was. The thing with Stephen Curry that people, I think, kind of overlook is the outlier growth that he undertook whenever he got to the NBA. He took an outlier jump basically from the time he was – his outliers came right before the NBC NBA, uh, MVP season. Good God, it's been a while, man. And it was the season before the MVP season. He took two massive, massive leaps those years in terms of efficiency, and it totally changed his game. So the summer of 2012 and the summer of 2014, he took these outlier-level leaps in terms of his game, and that – totally changed the way his game was. And I don't think that you can project those outlier level leaps onto a player like Trey Young. Like if you yeah. end up with what Stephen Curry was on the road to being when it was 2012, where he was averaging what, like over the course of his three years, probably like 17 points a game and six assists and doing it on efficient offense. That's a really good player, and that is a really valuable asset. Right, and I I think it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes how much good players improve. Even the best prospects, like LeBron has improved massively since he came into the league. It also helps that LeBron came in at 18, but still. Yeah. I mean, Draymond Green, Kevin Durant. I mean, I'm thinking about the Warriors because they're guys that I've covered for a lot of the time. I mean, I've seen Draymond Green's whole progression in person. And that's why it's more fair to compare these guys to who they were as prospects. Because anybody who's a finished product when they come into the draft is going to be a disappointment. Nobody comes in ready to, to really breach that level. That's why rookies are almost always below replacement level players. Because they have to learn a lot. They have to get their bodies better, everything else. And so with Trey Young, I think what's what's also really interesting about this for the Hawks is that I think he sets them on a course which they should have been on, and I think they were going to anyway, which is we need to be bad for a little while, build a team that eventually is going to make sense around this. And they kind of could have done that approach that so many other teams have where they, you know, get some veterans, use that cap space, stay feisty, but not really all the way in it. And one of the big downsides there, and this is what Sam Hankey did really well with the Sixers, is it's so hard to build an asset base. And so Trey Young, it's going to take him time to figure this out. You deal with those growing pains, you embrace those growing pains, and just like a baseball team that's bad for a couple years and then eventually their farm system builds up and those guys like the Houston Astros, NBA teams can work the same way. And it's especially good to do that when you're not really a free agent destination, to just get enough players where you can do it alone. You don't need those other external inputs, but you're ready for them should they come. Yeah, and you bring up Atlanta, and I kind of want to move in to that uh, and talk about them really quick because I love what Atlanta did. I don't love the value, the way that they attacked it necessarily. Like I think Amari Spellman is not a top 50 player in this draft, and they took him at 30. I already said like I don't love the – a value of a Trey Young at, you know, five for what they got. Essentially, they took Trey Young at three and got an extra first round pick for it. I, I don't love that value, but I love the vision and direction that Travis Schlenk has for the way he's going to build that roster. He took three 
excellent, excellent shooters last night. He took Trey Young, who is maybe the best pull-up shooter in the draft. He took Kevin Herter, who might be the best catch-and-shoot guy in the draft, and he can actually do a little bit more off the bounce, and he's a great handle uh, for a guy that's six foot seven. He can pass a little bit, and he runs off of screens and shoots it off movement. Uh, then you look at Amari Spellman, great pick-and-pop guy who can space the floor. It's clear that that's going to be what he values coming from Golden State. It's very easy to see why that's going to be what he values. But it, even if I don't love all of the picks in their uh, actuality, I love the vision. I love the direction. I, I think it's very competent and it's very smart. I also like that they, even though I'm a big fan of Robert Williams, that they didn't really go hard after bigs, even though this was a big, heavy draft, because you can get the right guy when the right guy presents themselves, but yeah. it is so much harder to find everything else at this juncture. And I mean, you can even see that with the Hawks center that opted in, Dwayne Dedman, you know, about the six, seven million dollars, he decided to pick that up instead of risking it in free agency. You can pull guys. And then when the right player is there, you take the right player. You don't force it. You don't push it. And, you know, if, if bigs are, are the best guys there, I'm not going to kill a lot of teams, especially the ones a little bit behind them, you know, like Orlando taking Mobamba. Sure. That's fine. But I, I would be much more critical of their draft if Trey Young had been on the board. He was not. So there are those circumstances. But I like what the Hawks did about saying, you know, like, we can figure that out. They still need defense. I mean, just shooting is important, but you still need defenders. But realistically, yep. at 19, you're not going to find those two-way players. Yeah, no question. I think that's absolutely right. So much more to talk about with Sam Vecini on this eventful, interesting draft. But I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Hims. Hims is going after a problem where it is extremely beneficial to be proactive. When you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It is so much easier to keep the hair you have rather than replace the hair you've lost. And that all makes sense. It, it shouldn't be a big surprise to anybody. But 66% of men lose their hair or start losing their hair by the age of 35. So that's an absolutely massive number. And once it starts to change, as I said, it's easier to... to keep what you have, then lose it. And so that's what Hims is going after. It connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat your hair loss. Well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. Don't have to deal with doctor visits, waiting rooms, and it's all shipped to you, right to your door. You answer a few quick questions, doctor reviews it and can prescribe it, and you can check it out for a, a great price. So what you do is you go to forhims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash real, and you get a trial month of hymns for just $5 while supplies last. It would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or the pharmacy, so you should definitely check it out. Forhims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash real for that $5 trial month while supplies last. One of the more interesting topics of discussion that I've noted throughout the draft process from NBA people is Neil Olshay. He said kind of what you just said, you know, you're not going to find guys who contribute to, you know, 49 win teams or whatever at 37 in the draft or late in the draft, which is why they valued taking an upside swing on Anthony Simons, which I wasn't really a fan of. And they valued taking buying essentially Gary Trent in the second round. He's a freshman. He's going to take some time to develop. I personally don't just I just don't believe in that mantra necessarily. I mean, we've seen now in the 2017 draft that you can go out and you can find wings. The need for wings in the NBA and the need for athletic defenders in the NBA makes it so that now if you can bring that to the table, you can contribute early. 
OG Ananobi, 23rd overall. Kyle Kuzma, 27 overall. Josh Hart, 30th overall. You know, Shimmy Ojale, 37th. Dylan Brooks. Jordan Bell, 38. Dylan Brooks, 45. Sterling Brown, 46. Sindarius Thornwell, 48. You can find guys that will contribute early now. We're entering a different time in the NBA. These these guys, NBA teams have figured out that these guys are valuable now, and they've figured out how to use them. And additionally, with the need for bigs being so different to what it was back in the day, it's generally easier to find guys that are six foot six than it is to find guys seven foot just based off of population metrics. So there are going to be more of these guys in these drafts and there are going to be more guys that I think can help teams earlier in their careers than what we've seen in the past. So I don't really buy into the idea of we just take swings on upside and that's it. Well, if you can get Jacob Evans at number 28, that's a pretty damn good pick. And that's something I would go down the road of doing because he can dribble pass, shoot and defend. And that's awesome. Also, there are guys in that area who can contribute because we've seen it over the last couple of years. I mean, you brought up Jordan Bell, Patrick McCaw in 2017. That was he was an, a, a party played in game five. I think that was the clinch game of the NBA finals that year. And those are guys who contributed on teams that had plenty of options. You know, this wasn't a situation where they were thrust into duty. Right. There are other teams where that have that greater opportunity. I also want to bit, draw a big differentiation. I am less familiar with Simons and Trent than you are between high upside shooting guard only players and high upside players who are forwards. And it is shocking to me that the Blazers of all teams that Olshay has not realized one of the biggest problems with his team beyond them just not having depth at a lot of positions is that they've whiffed so many times on forward or like just not either not taking the opportunity, not sign somebody, signed Evan Turner, all those sorts of things. If they had better play from the three and the four overall, more depth, yep. higher ceiling guys, they would have won more playoff series. And they have this top two that they haven't really been able to build around largely due to, you know, not using their resources on that position. You know, they spent a lot of money on Alan Crabb. They were able to get out of it, but they spent a lot of money on Crabb. They spent a bunch of money on Myers Leonard. It's just, just a strange decision. You can say, oh, those are the free agents they had. Well, those are also the players that got drafted. You know, you had these things all run together and Portland, you know, they, they are missing, missing something there. And I, I agree with you that, that there are differences. And also some thing you and I have talked about numerous times on this podcast is the idea that a wing, let's say, like a forward-sized guy, maybe they're not going to be a starter, but if you can get 15 to 20 minutes a game from them, that's great because yep. teams always need those players. There aren't enough of them to go around in the entire league. And if you look at the franchises that have been the best run over the last couple of years and some of the most successful... Boston threw a ton of resources at forward-sized guys. The Warriors have the maybe the best collection of forward-sized players in the history of the NBA. Houston, sure, they have Chris Paul and Harden. Look at what they did with their other, other stuff. They have Trevor Reza from a while back. They used their full mid-level exception in subjecting themselves to the hard cap to bring in P.J. Tucker. They somehow got him Bob Mute for the minimum. They brought in Gerald Green, who is, you know, kind of on the fringes of forward-sized guys. But they did all of those things because they understood that while those guys might not be the best players on a championship team, they are basically prerequisites at this point. Yeah, and that's exactly why I'm higher than some people on Miles Bridges. I'm higher than some people on Mikhail Bridges. You know, Kevin Knox is a lottery pick, despite the fact that he wasn't like awesome at basketball this year. I was high on Chandler Hutchison, Josh Okoji, Jacob Evans, all of these dudes, John Amuso, who's six foot nine. Like 
they have so much value now. They have so much value. And this was a strong draft to get them. Melvin Frazier, 35. Kyrie Thomas is six foot three, but he has a six ten wingspan and can guard up the lineup. 38. Jared Vanderbilt, 41. Bruce Brown, 42. Justin Jackson, 43. Kata Bates Diop, 48. Alizé Johnson, 50. Vince Edwards, 52. Like you can keep going down and down this list. And there were wings galore who can be rotation players in this draft. And teams passing on them is kind of crazy to me. I mean, like at some point, Mo Wagner becomes a value once he hits like 38 or 39. But 25, he doesn't, that, that, that's not super valuable to me. You know, like Amari Spellman, he's not going to be able to defend anyone in the NBA. And you have Travis Schlenk out here calling him like a three. They think he's going to be able to guard threes and he couldn't, he couldn't guard anyone in space in college. So like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the appeal by some of these teams. And some of that also ties in with this concept of where you define talent level. So one of the differences of opinion that you and I ended up having was just in in the overall level of quality of some of the point guards in this class. So I actually had some of the wings over guys like Shea, Gilgis Alexander, and Colin Sexton just because I I thought for me they fell below the line of not of replaceability where they could end up being good. They certainly have the upside to be above average starters in the league. They certainly can do all that kind of stuff, but. There is a line somewhere around the 25th best point guard in the NBA where they still provide value. Obviously, they do. But they're not as valuable because there are guys in that sure. range like Fred Van Vliet. There are numerous. I, I think Dennis Schroeder is probably around that area, and that's why it's going to be so hard to get him traded. But Yeah. But like so the th- 60th best point guard or the 60th best wing in the NBA is probably more valuable than the 25th best point guard. Right. And so that is an interesting valuation that some of these teams got into. And the easiest explanation for why some of them went in a different direction was just that they think they're better players. And that's totally justified. I understand that I think I was on the low side on both Colin Sexton and Shea. But it gets at this idea of, you know, I I don't, I've talked about this before in terms of how I pick a playoff series where one of the elements that I genuinely think about is, will this haunt me? Like, if I if I went the other way, like, will it haunt me? And so for part of the reason I picked the Celtics over the Bucks was I went, I there's a distinct chance I'm going to feel really stupid if this goes the other way, even though I thought the Bucks were more talented. That's kind of the thing for me with Sexton and Shea. Both those guys are talented, but I don't see them as those type of players that are just going to haunt me. Whereas Michael Porter Jr., there's a chance that passing on him haunts the team. Maybe. Uh, it depends on what the medicals look like in that case, I think. Th- that can always be really tricky in those situations from what I was told. For sure. Um, the medicals with Porter were tough. Uh, they, they were not great. Um, yeah, and back injuries, we should note, back injuries are one of the ones that still scare people. I mean, it, there are certain injuries that have lost some of their stigma just because we know how to handle them. Back injuries are not on that list because yeah. they can recur, they can come back in, in different severities at basically any time, and you know, it's it's that, Achilles, you know, multiple ACLs is probably still on the list. Yep. Then some foot stuff. There, there are a couple different foot things that well, can be it, scary. Yeah, structural stuff right. tends to be scary to NBA teams. Just situations where you, or you have structural deficiencies, basically. That's the stuff that scares NBA teams. Back stuff also just scares NBA teams. Uh, Jeff Stotts has done research on this. I think he said something like 75% of lower back injuries and microdiscectomies end up recurring in some manner and like have the guy miss a substantial amount of time. So back injuries are scary. H- having said that with Shea though, I'm a little, I understand why people are low on Colin Sexton. 
I'm not because I think that he is just totally different from a mindset perspective and from a competitiveness, com- competitiveness perspective and just all of the, you know, mental acuity stuff that I think you have to look for in this process. Shea though is six foot six with a seven foot wingspan and again can dribble past defend right now. Shoot is the question. I think he's going to be able to shoot. But that's just because I think, like, I've been out here in L.A., talked to people that have seen him. He, he's shooting it better in workouts. And that stuff's hit or miss. But when you're six foot six and seven foot wingspan and you can dribble, pass, and defend, it makes life a lot easier. Yeah, that's definitely true. And with, with Shea, I see the appeal. I, th- I think that's all true with a lot of these guys is that I, I get it, but I just I just a little happen to be a little bit lower. It happens. I'm wrong a fair portion of the time with those. Sometimes I'm not. We'll, we'll see how it works out. I want to get back, though, to the centers, and I, I think the first place I want to go with, with you was, did they go, so when we're talking about centers, we're talking the guys who are pure fives. So yeah. let's let's say Aiton, Jaron Jackson, who end up, might end up playing the four, but he's a five. Bamba, Wendell Carter. So the first question I want to ask you is, did so those not, guys, not Marvin Bagley? Not Marvin Bagley. Oh, no, Marvin yeah. Bagley's a three, obviously. Flotty. We're, we're going to have to talk about the Marvin Bagley, Luka Doncic decision at oh, some yes, point, we will. but continue. I, I wanted to build to that. So, okay, so th- we have those four centers, all of whom won in the top seven. First question I want to ask you is, do you think they went in the correct order? Yeah, I actually do think they went in. They, that's the order I have them in. Yeah, and that was something I thought about. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's going to happen. And it did. And Jaron Jackson, I can see why he was a little bit more of an acquired taste just because he, to me, is a much smarter defender than all of the other guys. Maybe yeah. Wendell, Wendell Carter is a little bit different, but he's just more physically limited. And I, Jackson's jump shot is just weird to me. It's one of those ones. I always freak out when a guy has a weird jump shot that goes in mm-hmm. because you always are like, well, then the difference is just whether it's going to go in or not. That's a, a much different bet than on mechanics. But- so here, here's what I will say about that. I'm typically in the same boat as you are with that stuff, but... Guys who tend to get really good arcs on the ball like Jackson does, even though he has that like low release point with like kind of a push on it. Guys who tend to get really good arcs on their ball tend to have bigger cross sections of the basket that they can hit. And it makes it a little bit easier for the shot to translate, even if the mechanics are a little bit funky. You know, Reggie Miller, for instance, like had a really good cross section on his jump shot, despite being kind of a funky jump shooter. A guy like Landry Shamit, though, at 26 who goes and a guy like Michael Frazier a few years ago who was a consistent 40% three-point shooter from Florida his jump shot was flat Landry Shamit's jump shot is flat and it's a problem yeah and I'm I'm wondering with Jackson what type of versatility he's going to have on that shot because I mean now especially for big men who don't have the most nuanced post game and I'm fine with big men not having a great post game it's uh, you know I, I think that's yeah. an overrated skill but you still need to have some versatility on that jump shot because they're going to be put in circumstances where you need to take different you know sometimes it's just a straight catch and shoot I mean the footwork on pick and pops is very interesting everything like that and so I'm just I'm not all the way there yet on him offensively but I still supported him as the second best center in this draft because of his defensive intelligence capability and consistency of effort I thought he did a pretty good job trying 100 i think that's all right uh in terms of his offensive ability i like the handle a little bit he showed it occasionally at michigan state but it was all flashes that's the big thing with jaron jackson that you know i I think 
left people a little bit concerned on offense is that it was all flashes. It, you know, he, he was not necessarily the most consistent performer because he was Michigan State's fifth option. But, you know, he, he was, you know, maybe he should have been like their third option, but he shouldn't have been their first option either because Miles Bridges was there. Cassius Winston was there. Josh Langford was a more consistent creator than what he was. So it's tough when that's your situation in college to get to show everything that you can do. But it's hard. I think it's all very, very difficult to judge when you're talking about a kid that is younger than just about everyone in this class, draft class and has had a trajectory over the course of the last three years that has gone through the roof. So let's talk a little bit about Aiden. I mean, that was the only pick that we kind of knew the last time you and I talked on the show. And I understand, even though I didn't have Aiden number one on my board, I had him number two. It's it's a justifiable case. You know, it's just, it's more of a difference of opinion kind of than anything else. Sure. And with, with Aiden, what I actually found, what I find interesting about it is just kind of wondering where this Suns team is going as an overall structure. And so for me, the, the, the questions were not as much with Aiden as much as, oh, we're also going to give up an unprotected 2021 first round pick to swap Zaire Smith. Well, they probably would have taken somebody else. DiVincenzo is kind of reported as the guy they were going to take, but instead moving up to get Mikhail Bridges. And so I'm just kind of sitting there going, well, what is McDonough's concept of what this team is good is going to be good at and how they're going to beat teams now that they're, you know, they're not fully realized. They're not even close to that, but they're getting, they're moving closer. They're requiring a ton of personnel. So my theory on all of that is that he just wanted to acquire talent that could help him right now, basically. You look at DeAndre Ayton, he's obviously going to fill a massive hole in the middle. I genuinely think he's going to average like 17 and 10 as a rookie. Uh, I'm really, really high on his game. Maybe that's my fault. Then you look at Mikhail Bridges, and Mikhail Bridges is a guy that can just come in immediately, shoot off a movement, hit 40% of his threes, and hopefully defend at a reasonable clip. So I am generally a fan of going out and getting guys who can help you when you're a bad team. I will say, I think that there's a little bit of self-preservation in this for Ryan McDonough because both of these guys can come in immediately. Zaire Smith, not a guy who can come in immediately. A lot of the options at 16 on downward, not really a guy that are, that's going to come in immediately and help. But by getting Mikhail Bridges and giving up a 2021 pick where Ryan McDonough probably won't be there unless they start to really, really win basketball games soon, you know, makes sense for him in his mind trying to save his job a little bit. Right. Yeah, I understand it from from his perspective. And and also the idea that I'm just not sure of in terms of Mikhail Bridges, to me, he seems more like a 2-1 defender more than a 3. I mean, he certainly can, but maybe not the elite guys. And so I'm just wondering how they're going to pick players throughout this system. Like, So how are they going to build a roster? Are they Do they think they have enough shot creation without going after a point guard? I mean, do they think Alfred Payton's the answer a point guard? Because, or I mean, Devin Booker can run the ball a little bit. So I, I'm very interested in just what the theory of this is. Or are they kind of seeing that as another spot that they need, a, a real creator? And then Bridges slides in as a lower op- offensive option. Booker's going to be Devin Booker. And then you wonder about, well, what is Josh Jackson? I don't think you need to concern yourself as much with the players you have in terms of who you think are the best guys moving forward. But it is just a little bit strange when you think about the collection they have now and the commitments that mostly this front office made to those players. Yeah, no, I, I do understand that. I think it's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, as you and I just kind of talked about at the top of this podcast, you can't have enough wings. 
I totally understand that. I mean, maybe he thinks he can find a point guard on their free agency market. I mean, I'm not feeling great about that this year, but maybe he thinks he can find it next year. Maybe he thinks he can go out and trade for like a Dennis Schroeder or something like that. Again, not something I would necessarily be like a massive fan of, but there are going to be options out there on the free on the trade market that they can probably get relatively cheaply. So I, I at least somewhat understand going after a wing versus a point guard right now, especially when you can afford to take on a little bit of money too. That is an, an interesting kind of component of this. So how are you feeling about that Miami pick? I think that Miami pick has more, it has a lot of upside as a, as a draft asset for two reasons. One, we have no idea what that Miami team is going to be. That is the year after Dragic yeah. and Hassan Whiteside, I believe uh, Tower Johnson as well, after all those guys expire. So that means two different things. One, they could have a lot of turnover. But two, if Miami ever has any salary flexibility, you always wonder about what magic they can pull off, though they won't be building from as strong a base, at least as of right now. But two, there is some reporting out there that that could be the first draft that high school players are allowed back in that could end up being a really, really deep draft because you have this mix of high school players and one and done guys. And that's the draft right now that I would be circling and saying, I don't want to move anything from that draft. And so Phoenix was one of the only teams that had an extra pick in that year. And so it was strange to give it up right after that announcement. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that from a value perspective, the Sixers won that trade. No question in my mind. In the macro, I like what Phoenix did last night. I think that they did a really, really good job, but that was a slight misstep in my opinion. Um, it's not like a major misstep necessarily. It could be a major misstep, but my guess is that it's not. My guess is that Miami is probably going to keep being either in the middle of the pack or they're going to sign free agents. Like when Miami has cap space, I'm just assuming they're going to be fine. You know, like, is that unfair? Cause Miami is 2020 cap space bleeding into that 2021 draft pick. So like, they can get up to right now. It looks like like sixty million, I think. So uh, I don't I don't know. It's it's tough. It's a, it's a really really tough one to kind of judge. But the upside of it is real. And the other big thing of that there is like how big of a carrot will that be for the San Antonio Spurs or another team that has a disgruntled superstar over the next year and a half because they'll keep coming. How big of a carrot is that if the 76ers want to go get another star? Yeah, or even beyond that, I'm a big believer in, and this is a parallel to what some of the, something I love that Hinky did, of having a pick far enough into the future where if you think you're going to be good, that it could actually be a, a much needed talent yep. infusion. And that's, you know, even if they keep that pick, we don't know exactly where it's going to end up. But if it ends up being solid, you know, let's say somewhere between 10 and 20, something in that range. That'll be a player that the Sixers could really use at that point. It's right around when Simmons is going to get expensive, depending on what happens with Markel Fultz, and nobody has any idea at this point. (laughs) All of those types of things. And so you need cost control. You need young talent. So whether maybe that goes into some other team's coffers through some trade, but they could also keep it, get some value. This is not nearly as good, obviously, as that Kings pick was back in the day, which they ended up using to get Markel Fultz. And... We'll have to see, but I like having that in in there. And while I like the fit of Mikhail Bridges with the Sixers, I think that, as you said, from a value proposition, I think they did well, even though, of course, you can't, can't deny the emotional part of it has to be really tough on the Bridges family. 
Yeah, like I, I wasn't a huge fan of the way that that situation seemed to be handled from the outside. I would imagine that like the NBA kind of forces Mikhail Bridges to go out and do like a press conference of some sort when they invite him to the draft and everything. I, I just wish that it would have gone a little bit differently. I, I don't know that there's necessarily anyone to blame, but it, it sucks. It, it's really, really not fun. It is unfortunate that that was the situation and i'm just at the end of the day this is a business and you have to understand and i think that mikhail handled it with maturity and was mostly just disappointed for his uh for his mother apparently plenty more to talk about with sam vicini but here's a message from true car here's some useful car tips you might not be aware of a coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage, and you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip you might not know about. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right, TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid, so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They are also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or a used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Also wanted to give you another quick reminder about the Podcast One survey that is still going on. You can go to www.podcastone.com slash mysurvey, or you just go to podcastone.com, click on the survey banner. It takes no more than five minutes, short, completely anonymous, and it's trying to get advertisers aligned for the audience of Real Jam Radio. So it's a great thing you can do to help us out. Keep the podcast free to download. Ideally, even do more episodes per week. That's really what I'm going for. If you filled a survey in the past, thanks so much, but we still need you to do it again. So big help to Real Jam Radio and Podcast One, podcastone.com slash mysurvey or Podcast One. Click the survey banner. Thanks so much. So I realized in all of this, one of the things we didn't really talk about too much is the Mavericks with Luka Doncic. And... I am absolutely fascinated with how this is going to work. I think Dennis Smith, you know, he dealt a little bit with playing with other ball handlers because Rick Carlisle loves doing that. But I think that combination can work long term. And also having those two guys locked in now from a team building perspective for Donnie Nelson and the rest of their front office, they now can treat those guys as constraints and say, okay, how do we build the best possible team around those guys over the next three or so years? Because it is going to take them some time. And I'm really excited to see what they come up with. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm also very excited about the fact that, you know, the Mavericks over the last, what, two decades have invested more money in overseas scouting and more resources in overseas scouting than just about anyone. And I'm glad that it almost feels like this was earned to get Luka Doncic for them to me. It's great, and I'm excited to see what they do with Max Capspace this summer, too, because they get that, and uh, Max Capspace is crucial to the way they are going to build, especially with a big, heavy market, because you have to wonder if, you know, does DeMarcus Cousins look at this? Who else looks everywhere? It's a very interesting process, I think. 
it even goes beyond that two decades. Two decades is how long Dirk has played because Donnie Nelson, when before he was involved with the Mavericks, was involved with the Warriors and was instrumental in Sarunas Marshallonis, which yeah. was who was a trailblazer in a lot of ways in terms of players from from Europe coming over. And I, I like it from that perspective as well. It'll be interesting. I, I Mark Stein's tweet about how you know Dirk's last season, which I thought was interesting, not not a surprise, but the idea that it sounds like this is Dirk is going to play next year and it will be his final season so they can go in that direction and what Dallas I think they've really suffered from an overall you know success perspective and you can say that's not the goal and I think that's part of the story here from the kind of extended swan song for Dirk just because they didn't want to really go all the way down the well they ended up getting really lucky last year and having Dennis Smith fall to them this year they they were lost a ton of close games had some injuries all that kind of stuff so they ended up in position to make a Doncic trade possible because if they had been a little bit better they wouldn't have had the assets to move up so now they're, they can do this, and I don't know whether that means, you know, tearing it down a little bit further or whether that means just, you know, building using cap space, but they have opportunities to make this happen and can do a lot of different things also in terms of defense and shooting and support pieces here because Doncic, as you talked about his, you know, like that he's, he's not a great defender, but that he can, you know, you can hide him in a lot of different ways, but his strengths can really be used well, not only by Rick Carlisle, but by a team that can build pieces around them. Yeah. And you know, the other thing here too, and you know, I don't mean to keep bringing this back to poorly run organizations, but Rick Carlisle is going to know how to get the most out of them. Like I have no doubt in my mind that Rick Carlisle is going to figure out exactly what needs to happen to get the most out of Luka Doncic. He's going to put him in great positions to succeed. He's going to put him in uh, great positions on side pick and rolls. Doncic knows how to move off the ball. He's going to be great there. This is just a home run. And we should kind of tie this into Sacramento now because I find the – contrast of decision making by Sacramento and Dallas so fascinating because out of Sacramento you had reports from Jason Jones and uh, Carmichael Dave and all these guys who have sources within the organization saying that De'Aaron Fox played a real role they didn't want to take the ball out of De'Aaron Fox's hands and give it to Luka Doncic Dallas on the other hand was more than willing to quote unquote take the ball out of Dennis Smith's hands and I say quote unquote because it's probably not going to take the ball out of his hands all that much you watch Luka Doncic play overseas you watch him play for Slovenia you watch him play for Real Madrid he plays with a point guard regularly like he doesn't do it all the time but he plays with a point guard so often like on Slovenia it's Goran Dragic on Real it's Facundo Campazzo who's Argentina's point guard from the national team like dumb organizations stay dumb this way by continuing to run through the wrong processes and i'm not saying that i know that luka Doncic is going to be better than marvin bagley but like the process if that was a piece of the process as the reports indicate is not great it's it's it would be falling ass backwards into a star player it's also problematic for one of the other possible reasons that Sacramento chose Marvin Bagley, which was his willingness to go there. And 
I completely understand players being coy, being even being just straight up upfront about what they want if they find that it's actually going to work. Because I wouldn't want to go to the Kings right now. I mean, this is a lot about a second contract. And when you look at where this is going with Sacramento, they've had a lot of draft assets. Like Willie Cauley-Stein has barely played center. He hasn't played center with any floor spacing. So he hasn't really gotten many opportunities to play, but he also hasn't built his value. So, and he was, you know, taken high. They had said a lot of really nice things about him. And you could, you could make an argument that he didn't take the brass ring. But still, I mean, these teams aren't really building value from their guys as often as you would hope for. You know, sometimes like in TJ Warren's case, they'll pay them anyway. But that is a real concern here. And if they can get into better circumstances, if Luka Doncic could massage the situation to not go to Sacramento, you do that. And from Sacramento's part, you take the best player. It'll make it work. They're not going to Steve Francis, the situation. Like, that's just not where the NBA is right now. So, I mean, the most the most prominent example, because I went through it, was Steph Curry. Steph Curry did not want to go to the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry did not work out for the Golden State Warriors. They really liked him. They thought he was going to be special. They didn't care at all that he didn't want to go there. And drafted him, and he was the right pick then. He's the right pick now. And not every time a player refuses to work out, does that player become awesome. But if if Sacramento is going to use that as a priority thing, then you're going to see some opportunists like Marvin Bagley who show that willingness, get you know get the opportunity. He'll probably play a bunch with them. They'll go for that. And then other t- people will see the artificial constraints of the rookie scale and say, hey, it's more about the second contract. I want to go somewhere that actually makes sense. Yeah, no, that's all I think 100% right. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, Marvin Bagley was more excited about being the number two pick than he was necessarily where he was going to go, I guess. He, he wanted to go as high as possible in the draft. And then you look at a guy like, you know, Luka Doncic, a guy like Muhammad Bamba, these guys were more uh, worried about where they were going to go. And the, the team who I think handled that best, handled that, you know, kind of push and pull best this year was Memphis because very few good prospects wanted to go work out in Memphis. And at the end of the day, they essentially called Jaron Jackson's bluff and said, hey, we're going to take you and, you know, deal with it. <laughs> like, And eventually Jaron Jackson relented. They sent the medicals and uh, everything was OK. So like it, it's just a very, very it, it's a tough process. But I think at the end of the day, you, you got to just take the guys who are the best players, the players that you evaluate best. And I think that the, the big problem with a lot of this is the more that I do this, the more I you know, am kind of stuck in this world, the less I am impressed by a lot of the super high end like talent evaluators in this the guys who like make decisions uh there are a lot of really good ones don't get me wrong like more than half of the league is very very good at this but there are a lot of teams who really value like individual workouts and who really value getting a look at a guy for the first time in person one on o and just seeing the way he moves and to me that that's silly and a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of general managers just because of the NBA season, don't get a chance to go out and do a lot of in-person scouting. And I think that a great example of the opposite of that is Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge gets a chance to go out and does uh, all sorts of scouting in person. And the Celtics over the last three years have been one of the best drafting organizations in the league. 
And also, while there are certainly ways to take away information and valuable information from individual workouts, there is also a lot that you get from watching them play five on five in games that actually matter. Like, you know, the, the, in terms of the reads and the, the, the situations that a guy makes. And that's why it wasn't surprising to me that Kevin Knox started rising on workouts because he's a, a physical talent, you know, and he seems like a good kid. I dealt with him a little bit with the various youth events that he did. But my biggest criticisms with him were when he played five on five, that there were just that he wasn't doing much to contribute to his team winning basketball games other than when his shot was going in, when he was scoring. And so it's not a surprise, not only that he ended up rising from between the season and the draft, but also that he went to the Knicks, a team that I don't see as particularly cognizant all the time of that disparity. Yeah, no, I think that Again, definitely right. This is a thing where this it happens too often. I think where teams either over or under think things. The underthinking is, you know, valuing the pre-draft workout too often. The overthinking is evaluating prospects to death. And I think that I fall victim to the latter. I, I evaluate these guys to death and sometimes I end up missing on guys that I shouldn't miss on. But, you know, again, like, and this is not an immunity of NBA teams because they are the professionals doing this, you know, day in, day out. That, NBA teams struggle with this. The evaluation process is very, very tough. It's very, very difficult. And I honestly don't know if we're getting any better at it. Yeah, and the getting any better at it is is an important question, especially when you consider the prospect of the age limit changing again, and also the the increased role of the G League and these two-way contracts and all these other pieces, and I'm very interested to see how that affects it moving forward. Like, do we see some of these second-round picks go on to two-way contracts? Do oh, yeah, they- here... Here's something that I think will happen. You're going to see front offices expand significantly. Um, you should. Yeah. I think that once the one and done goes away, you're going to see scouting departments expand significantly. Once the G League really gets up and running, uh, you know, it's getting close, but it's not quite there yet. You're going to see scouting departments down there uh, expand. You're starting already to see European scouting departments expand. It's just – it's it, analytics departments are expanding day in, day out. You're starting to see a situation where teams are reacting to that. Like the Sixers have a massive front office. The Clippers have a massive front office. But I think that around the NBA, you're going to start to see kind of an arms race in that regard. And it makes it, you know, complete and this sense. Is, and this is something that you've mentioned to me because it's a huge marginal advantage. You mentioned marginal advantages in regard to ownership. And I'm sorry to cut you off, but like, Go ahead. you're saying it, what I was going to say. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really good point. I'll, I'll let you say it because you're, you know, this is something that you bring up all the time. So everybody always focuses on the player side of this, but, and, and certainly there are advantages, you know, on the, on the managing the salary cap. And I'm fortunate that I get, you know, that part of it. Some people care about and not many people know it super well. So I get to specialize and do what I do. Thanks to real GM, the athletic and everybody else. But there is a second component of this. And really what you're looking at with all of this is elements that teams can spend to get an advantage on other teams more in the long run in the immediate that do not count against the salary cap. And so for a period of time, people were focusing on the facilities. And that's certainly a part of it for a lot of these teams. We're seeing a lot of teams get better facilities or improve, renovate, whatever it's going to be. And a lot of times that is a benefit of new arenas like the Milwaukee Bucks. You know, they're going to get the benefit of better facilities because 
players deal, that's what they deal with day in, day out. They do play 41 regular season games in the actual arena, but they spend a whole lot more time in those facilities. But the other part of it is making sure you have the best information possible to draft and sign the right players. And so that's not just scouting for the draft, that's also scouting for two-way contracts, scouting for summer league spots, scouting for maybe there's a good guy in Europe that you can get for part or all of your mid-level exception. All of those Love that you brought up Europe. Continue. Right. And so all of these are ways that teams can get better, and they're especially important for franchises that have less flexibility in terms of the salary cap, in terms of the other ways they can get better. So you think about somebody like Houston. Houston, you know, Maury has done a great job over the years of financial flexibility. There is a certain point that teams get to, and they might reach this with Chris Paul. We'll see where those negotiations go, where you just can't be flexible because your players are too good. Your team gets too good to make that, to make flexibility the primary goal. It's just maximization. So with where Houston is, then it becomes, how do we get the best 15 guys on our roster? And scouting player development is the as another massive underlying bold face in all this. Making sure that you have the support, nutritionists, psychologists, everything. And all of those things don't count against the salary cap. And remember, the players only get half of this. So y- there are ways, depending on how you approach this business or personal endeavor, that you can really make, make hay while the sun is shining. And I'm so encouraged to see teams move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the idea of European scouting, not only for draft prospects and young players, but also for going out and trying to sign free agents over there. The Euro League is very good. Like you, you well, can find guys like Daniel Tice, like Shane Larkin. And, uh, and there's who, another who else came huge, over this huge year. part of this that is, I think, a big mistake that is still in the current CBA, which is from a morality perspective, it makes me uncomfortable, which is the structure of the league rules in terms of restricted free agency. Like you're yeah. seeing it with a lot of these guys that if they come over at 28, you're basically, you get their entire prime. Even if you sign them for like no money, like Daniel Tice is a great example of this. Daniel Tice as he's getting the minimum for, I believe it's two or three years. At that point, he gets basically a minimum qualifying offer. Congratulations, Boston. You know, you you, you have a guy for basically as long as you want him. And that is remarkable. And so there are certain times where if you have to pay them a little bit more, some of the most interesting decisions we're going to see this year are with guys like Nemanja Bielica because he has a much higher qualifying offer than... Also- Nemanja Bielica won the MVP of the Euro League. Right. So that's a little bit of a different thing. But so you see, so you well, have, I'm saying like he might get real Euro offers. He he definitely could. He also might get. I've been floating him as a as a possibility for the Warriors for the mid level, just because mm-hmm. I think he would fit yeah. him really well. And maybe that's what he wants. You know, that sort of a. It might be less money than Europe, but the chance to be a, a role player on a championship contender would be fascinating. And I think he'd fit in really well. So yeah, with some of those guys, they're going to see what they value. Tate Osich is another one. His situation is unusual because of the partially guaranteed player option. But you don't even have to go to the very very top. Side. I like that you brought up Daniel Tice because there are players like that all around. Somebody that I've been thinking about, and I haven't been following European basketball as much as I would like to just because I have a lot of other things to focus on, but Jan Vesely. Like, Vesely has created a spot for himself in Europe and could end up working in the NBA. Like, all those sorts of – there are a whole slew of guys – that once you get outside of the clear-cut like starters, that the Europeans or the guys playing in European leagues, they could even be Americans or Canadians or whatever. Like those, there are guys over there that can absolutely play and that would prefer or even are amenable to the Amer- to the NBA opportunity as opposed to what they're getting in Europe. 
Yeah, and you know, you you went to the top end of that scale with a guy like Jan Vesely, you know, like Euroleague All First Team. There are guys even like like Johannes Voitman, who is this six eleven dude from Germany who can who has hit forty four percent of his threes last year, who blocks like occasional shots here and there. He rebounds at a high level, uh, finishes at a high level. Like could easily come in and be a backup center in the NBA right now, in my opinion. These Euroleague centers in these EuroLeague guys because they're 25, 26, 27 years old, they're incredibly valuable. They have so much use to NBA teams, much more use than, say, an 18, 19, 20-year-old who is on a rookie-scale contract because they're developing. Yeah, and again, it's also the idea of present value versus future value. Now, I thought at the top end, if we're talking about Mo Bamba or we're talking about even Michael Porter, if he stays healthy, and I do want to talk about Michael Porter, that's something very different than some of these kind of lower upside functional functional guys like Mo Wagner is an interesting example of this. Like Mo Wagner will pro- has has talent. I'm intrigued to see what he can be as an NBA player. But there are probably a bunch of guys in Europe right now that are closer to being a part of the Lakers you know, that could be a a more important part of the Lakers' success over the next two years than Mo Wagner. And so maybe you're making that bet on three to four years from now, but it's still interesting. Yeah, 100%. Like that's, you know, you have to assume that Mo Wagner is going to be better than Johannes Voigtman, apparently, uh, three years down the road. And that's probably a fair, you know, bet to make. But is he going to be so much better? Well, it's not necessarily even a better bet that he's better than Voigtman. He's better than somebody else you can get for like $2 million. That's exactly what I was going to say. And and it's is the difference between the wing that you could get for $2 million and Johannes Voigtman is a backup center better than the wing you can draft in the center you can get for $200 or $202 million. I'm sorry. That That's a big, big difference to me just given how valuable we know wings are compared to the marginal value of what centers are getting on the market right now. And it also connects with something we talked about earlier, because generally speaking, the European markets are better at producing ones, fours, and fives than they are twos and threes. So again, that's something you can get. And there are exceptions to that, obviously. I mean, Luka Doncic, but I mean, Luka Doncic is not a find. Like, he's the most accomplished European teenager ever. But Musa, intriguing, but you know, there, there are certain limitations that he will always have. I actually watched film on him, found him really interesting. But it's a lot easier to gamble, you know, in the draft on the, on the wings, even though it takes a long time to figure it out and also gamble through scouting and summer league and G league and everything else like that. Because sometimes these guys, a lot of times it's about who can develop the three point shot as really anything else. Robert Covington is a great example of this. And then you can fill in your roster with other things that don't cost you as much in terms of treasure, meaning draft picks or money because they don't cost as much. Yeah, no, I think that that's all right. Basically. Um, well, what so I, I, what, what I, I kind of wanted to think about with that also, you, you, a guy that I think kind of is a good ex- explainer of this is Ekpe Udo. So Ekpe Udo was drafted high. That was a mistake, a team I covered and criticized for making that pick. And he needed some time. Eventually, he kind of got to the place where he understood, where he, not only that he understood what he was, because I think Ekpe was always kind of in that place, but Udo was able to use that to, to maximize himself, came back, and now he's like a three and a half million dollar player on the Jazz. I think that's a reasonable contract. I expect that they will pick it up unless they have some big moves to make this summer. And it just so happens that he, you know, played at Baylor and was a part of it. But there's just this whole universe of players at that level that are totally worth considering. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely right. Like Epe Udo, for instance, is 
you know, what, probably one of the 10 best players in Europe if he's over there right now. But in the NBA, he's a solid backup center who's making, like you said, three and a half million dollars. That is a valuable, valuable asset for an NBA team. And knowing that you can trust your scouting department to, I mean, again, like you're not really unearthing Epe Udo. Like I, I think that Boston legitimately I mean, unearthed again is strong because people knew who Daniel Tice was, but Daniel Tice wasn't really talked about as an NBA player last year. Having a scouting staff that can find the guys that can be very real potential NBA prospects is a very underrated and very, very undervalued skill in the NBA right now. It just is from a front office perspective. And if you look at, again, the ability to go out and get bigs like that and not find wings in Europe and not find a whole lot of value, uh, you know, in the draft with bigs in general, it's, it's kind of baffling the way that some teams end up operating. Let's talk a little bit about Michael Porter. Porter certainly has a a challenging set of decisions involving him. I had a theory out there that part of the reason he fell was just because you have to have a specific conversation about Michael Porter, and maybe some of the teams when he started falling just hadn't had that conversation. The back injury is scary. There's a lot of information, at least I don't have. But I, I will say this. By Thursday morning, just given what I was told, every team ha- in the top 14 had the Michael Porter conversation to decide, okay, is this a, is this a road we want to go down? Is this realistic for us? Every team kind of realized that it was possible. Interesting. And so with Porter, I mean, it, it's in certain points, the story is, is well known at this point. He was, to me, the absolute unquestioned standout of the 2017 Hoop Summit. I oftentimes go into those without knowing stuff. I'm not in your circumstance, just due to what we do is different. And I actually yeah, kind of like that. You have, you have a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, and what I, I kind of like about that is, like, you you remember the conversation we had, we had together at the 16 Hoop Summit where I'm like, oh, do people think Markel Fultz is actually good? Because I didn't know I didn't know at that point where he was ranked. And you laughed, and you're like, oh, yeah, he's one of the top guys in this class. Well, so for me, Porter, having gone into this basically blind, Porter was the standout at the 2017 Hoop Summit on either team. And the question really is, is that player still there? What are the chances of seeing that player back? Because that guy, to me, was better. And DeAndre Ayton had a better year at Arizona than I expected. But Michael Porter, you know, if, if there was no age limit and, like, all these guys would have been eligible, he would have been the number one pick, no questions asked in 2017. I think that's probably right. Yeah, I think that he probably goes over Markel Fultz. Yeah. Um, he probably goes over Jason Tatum as well. So yeah, yeah, no, I mean, if there was no age limit, or I guess the better way to put it is if he was the only person subject to there being no age limit, yeah, I think he probably goes first overall. The big thing with him is the back first and foremost. This is something he's apparently been dealing with, by the way, for like three years. And when you saw him at the Hoop Summit, it was still with back issues. And the fact that he was that good at Hoop Summit says a lot, I think, about what his upside is. If he can ever get with an organization like Denver, hopefully, that can figure out exactly how to make things work in terms of the biomechanics of his back and put him in position to where he can he can succeed. Because he is a three-level scorer, 25-point-per-game upside kind of guy. Great instincts on the offensive glass. Uh, finishes far above the basket, way more than he gets credit for. He can pull up with like a hesitation dribble 
and knock down shots from like 18 feet. He, he has a high release point, obviously, being as tall as he is. He, he is just totally ridiculous. He's unbelievable. Yeah, and so so there's a whole gamble to be made there about whether he, he can get hold or not. And by falling to 14, and there's some other parallels in this draft. Like, for example, I wasn't as high on Lonnie Walker, but when he falls to 18, then I'm more okay with that. And so with, with Michael Porter, Denver, I was very surprised by their draft overall because I thought they were going to use that pick to dump money. And Michael Porter is maybe the, he's a really hard player to dump money with now because their teams have these, you know, some teams just have him completely off their board. But if it works, that's exactly what I would have been going at as Charlotte and as the Clippers as well, where it can be hard to add star talent. It can be really, I mean, for Charlotte, it's, it's almost impossible to add star talent right. other than through the draft. For the Clippers, they have a different set of priorities because they could eventually use cap space, whether it's in 18, 19, or 20, and having a potential you know, beyond starter, like a high end, maybe maybe like an above average starter at a position of value on a rookie scale contract makes their life so much easier. And so I well, can, can we can we talk about Charlotte real quick? Because yes. I find that part of it really interesting because Charlotte has kind of dueling perspectives on this, in my opinion, because on one hand, they were much better than what their record was just from a way, uh, you know, margin perspective, like they should have been a 42 win team something along those lines. Do you continue to stay the course, add in a very talented piece like a Miles Bridges, add in a backup point guard like a Devontae Graham, and maybe you win 45 games next year, like just given that you're a better team and your margin luck ends up kind of shifting a little bit? Or do you take the risk on a star and go with Michael Porter, even though he might not be able to play this year? That's a really hard question whenever you're trying to figure out if you're going to keep Kemba Walker because you think you can maybe sign him down the road if you have a good year this year, or if you're trying to you know, dump Kemba Walker this summer. It's almost like I think the Hornets had to make that decision pre-draft. I don't know if they did, but... Well, there's another reason why they made that decision pre-draft, why they they tipped their hand with the Dwight Howard trade. Because what the Dwight Howard trade did was it cleared space for this offseason for the mid-level exception. That's right. And you don't care as much about squeezing out every dollar with the mid-level exception and staying under the tax if you're trading Kemba Walker. Because A, you could save money in a Kemba Walker trade, so then you don't have to think about that as much. And B, because the incentive structure is totally different. And so I think what they're going for, and I think this is a mistake, I thought it was a mistake when they didn't trade him at the deadline, you know, going back eons, I've, I've been critical of what they're doing. And so it all fits in with that same puzzle of like, do the best we can with what we have right now and then basically who knows where we'll be at, at at another point and we'll cross that bridge when we get to it like that's really what they've been doing it makes sense with Michael Jordan as an owner it makes sense with Mick Kupchak because that is a lot of what the Lakers did in those late years with Kobe was just yep. scrambling it was figuring things out they didn't have the long game they didn't play that that's one of the biggest differences between the Magic Palenka era and Kupchak and Jim Buss is that that idea of scrambling and the Lakers were just kind of grasping at straws the whole time and it's a really really bad way to run a team and with the Hornets you're just kind of wondering what they're getting at and it's what's so kind of weird about their whole circumstances I could see this completely working on what they consider success because depending on what happens with LeBron it's very possible that a playoff spot opens up in the Eastern Conference yep and 
really then it becomes about whether Charlotte is healthier than every than some of the other teams in that mix because a lot of the other teams at the bottom of the East, I mean, the Knicks are going to be without Porzingis for a while. We don't know how long. And the Magic, it's going to take them time to figure it out. You know, a lot of those other teams aren't going to be in in position to compete right away. So really, Atlanta, like, no, exactly. Chicago, probably not. Um, the Nets yeah. are probably not. I mean, especially depending on how they see their incentives as well. They this could also like they could move some of their other good players for younger guys and just have a good pick this year. So like yep. the Hornets are actually pretty well positioned to make the playoffs. And if that's all they want, then so be it. And the other part with Kemba, and it's it's something that I'm just absolutely fascinated in from a team building perspective is how I would define their position with him. Is I think he'd be my instinct is he'd be willing to come back, but he wouldn't take a discount because you know there are other teams that are going to be competitive. There is probably going to be a fair amount of space around the league next year. Kemba is going to be on the high end of restrict of uh, unrestricted free agent point guards. So a team could see him as a really good option, even if he's not as, you know, shiny as Jimmy Butler. Oh no, Kyrie Irving will be above him. Never mind, Kyrie will be there. But Kyrie also might be unattainable for a lot of these teams where Kemba Walker might be a little bit different. And so what I'm wondering with Charlotte is just kind of, this could all go exactly the way they want, and then they lose Kemba Walker, and then they're just... They're, they're they're sunk for a while and so but maybe what they're doing is they're saying we were going to be sunk either way why not just try it out a little while longer yeah i think that that's probably right like i think that what you just kind of said there is probably what they're thinking is we're going to give this another year we're going to try and sign kemba even though like i don't think that kemba walker third contract ends well do you no, I, I don't expect that. Now, if he had been a free agent this year, I could have seen that contract working out well. But next year, there are going to be teams with money. He's going to get an opportunity to show whatever he prioritizes. But assuming money is at least a small part of it, I, I don't think that contract's going to end up working out too well. His game could age decently, but I don't expect it. I mean, a lot of it is based off of quickness and separation. And Kemba is not young. You remember he came into the league, you know, a little bit older. Uh, out of Connecticut. He's already 28 years old. He'll be 29 entering the first year of that contract next year. That's tough. That's, that might not end well. <laughs> so I thought it would be a good exercise, partially for me, but I think it, my, my reading on things is generally pretty close to the listeners. I like to think so. So I wanted to ask you about a couple of players that I'm unfamiliar with and just kind of want to get the idea of how you feel about them. And the first one for me is Jerome Robinson ended up going 13 to the Clippers and just kind of, if I guess Why? if you, what just your, I, I don't really know how to phrase this question, but thoughts? <laughs> thoughts? Um, Jerome Robinson's fine. He is a guy that I really enjoyed watching at Boston College this year. I thought he was – I think I was on him as like a late first-round pick before anyone, but he never really rose above that level on my board. He is a really good scorer. He can handle the ball. He can get separation off his dribble because he is great change of direction and change of pace, especially dribble. Um, great hesitation move particularly. He can shoot. He shot 40%. He averaged 21 points on a 60% true shooting percentage this year at Boston College in the ACC. That is fantastic. And, uh, I mean, here's the other thing. Like, he can't defend. <laughs> he really is a poor defender, and that makes this entire situation hard. If you're going to be that bad of a defender and go 13th, you better be C.J. McCollum offensively. And I don't think he's that. I, I think he's a little skinnier. He doesn't have that center of gravity that C.J. does. He he's 
probably more of like a bench scorer to me than a uh, super high-level starter who could average 20 a night. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I watched a little bit of him, and I was just kind of sitting there going, yeah, he could end up being a good player. But again, the opportunity cost taking him 13th with some of the players that were on the board. I watched a little bit of Zaire Smith. I know you've watched more. Where does he fit in on a good team? He is a terrific defender immediately. He is a project offensively right now. He needs to figure out how to shoot the basketball or how to handle the basketball in a competent manner. He had a very, very limited role this year. He was essentially a six foot four power forward for Texas Tech. He had great length. He's obviously a ridiculous athlete. Uh, that's the big question that Philadelphia has to figure out. Where does he fit offensively for our team? Because you really have to buy into the jump shot for him to be a good fit there. If the jump shot comes along, and some people think it will, uh, he's continued to improve it over the course of the pre-draft process. And in general, he is a player that a lot of NBA executives think is just kind of on the rise right now, like just kind of on like the rocket ship to go upward within his projection. So I get it, but I was a little bit lower on him than some people were. I had him like right around where he was picked and I think it's a risky pick. Now that risk is mitigated by the fact they got another first round that is unprotected, but it's, it's a risk nonetheless. Josh Koji out of Georgia tech, two years there. And what, I'm happy that Minnesota took a low usage potential defensive player, but I guess for me, the question is, is he going to be able to do enough? I know you expressed in your write-up for The Athletic, he had some struggles finishing at the rim. We'll see if that can continue the NBA, but just like, is he good enough to be a part of their rotation in the next two, three years? Yes, I think he is. Um, He's the kind of player that I think Tom Thibodeau is going to like. He can really come in and knock down shots from three. He's physical defensively. He gets into passing lanes, blocks shots because of the seven-foot wingspan. Gets lost sometimes. Gets a little inattentive sometimes. I think that as his offensive role decreases once he gets to the NBA, his defensive energy will increase. He's a really good kid. He's also very young. He's 19 years old still. Very, very good pick, I thought. I had him, I think, a little bit lower on my board. I think I had him at like 27, 28, but it was a competent pick. I, I think it was fine. Aaron Holiday on the Pacers is fascinating because... Love it. Love it. I mean, so basically the idea at 23, you're not necessarily drafting a starter. You're drafting somebody who can be in the rotation. I've talked many times about the idea that a point guard, you know, having quality point guard play for 48 minutes is incredibly important. So just where do you see him fitting in there? Because remember now that both of their point guards that are above him in the rotation are not under contract after the 18-19 season. I think he is the perfect point guard to play next to Victor Oladipo. Three years over 40% from three at UCLA. 20 and six this year. Really, really good in the pick and roll, but can also play off ball as he showed against or showed while playing with Lonzo Ball last year. Defends at the point of attack in the way that Nate McMillan wants to build that defense out. I really like the pick. I am, you know, skeptical of him being the necessary athlete that it takes to be like a true top 20 point guard in the NBA. He might be more in like the top 25, top 30 range where realistically, if you're in that range, you probably want the guy as a backup as opposed to a, you know, tried and true starter. Having said that, I think that this is a great pick. I think it's just a really, really good fit for them. And I I think he's going to be able to contribute year one pretty easily. 
So I don't want to take too much more of your time. So I, will, I, other, I actually, there's one more guy I want to ask about just because I haven't seen him and I'm excited to because it sounds like he's going to come over. Elia Kobo, first mm-hmm. pick of the second round with the Suns, and actually they took a point guard. So I'm excited to see what he can be. Yeah, he's six six with or six two. I'm sorry, with a six eight wingspan. Good God, Ser- seriously, man, my brain is frying <laughs> uh, just from having to do stuff. Six two, six eight wingspan. He can really operate in the pick and roll. He has great footwork. He's a fluid athlete uh he really improved as a shooter off the dribble this year over the calendar year in 2018 they had a coaching change like right at the end of january so you go from that moment onward he's averaging 16 points and five assists over in france which tends to be a pretty athletic league he roasted my guy aaron craft on the day that Aaron Kraft got awarded the French League Defensive Player of the Year award, dropped 44 on his head, <laughs> has like that little flair for the moment, and he'll occasionally try and get up and like really rise up and dunk on you. Not quite that kind of guy yet necessarily. More of a guy that is almost D'Angelo Russell-esque in, in his athleticism. Not quite that good, but like, you know, in the way that he utilizes his smoothness and his quickness. I lied. One more specific one. I was gushing over the Robert Williams pick, and while his conference call skills yeah. certainly need some work, I just think taking somebody with his physical talent where they did is, where Boston did, is just a great use of it. And that's also the benefit of having a ton of wings already, is that they can go after a center who has the potential Robert Williams at 27. Whomst among us hasn't had a party in a Shreveport Buffalo Wild Wings and then had to call in to work late the next day? It's fine, you know. Yeah, it, it I, I have no, I have no problem with it whatsoever. And <laughs> and Robert, I mean, physical talent. So I, I told this on Twitter last night, but like I watched both of those, both him and Wendell Carter a lot. I like Wendell Carter quite a bit. I didn't have Robert Robert Williams. God, I can't believe I'm getting that wrong. I didn't have him too far below. They, it was a difference. Yeah. It was a difference that was meaningful, but it wasn't that big a difference. And I had them the, eleven and fourteen. Right. And so, like, that's kind of why I was a little bit uncomfortable with the Bulls taking Wendell Carter at seven, is I didn't expect necessarily that Robert Williams was going to be there, but somebody was going to be there this year, next year, whatever. And the, for, the problem there is that they had promised that pick to Chandler Hutchison at 22 for, for like a year months. ago. Yeah. yeah. And so, but, but I think it could really work. Stevens, it will be a little bit of an adjustment just because now that Aaron Baines is a shooter, apparently every guy who plays center for Boston shoots, but Robert Williams is just, he's the type of talent where you give, you give him a little bit of a different opportunity and he can make it work. Yeah, no. And the big thing with him, I mean, you mentioned all of the skill stuff. He's got all of the bounciness in the world. He's got like a seven, five wingspan. That's not the stuff to worry about with Robert Williams. The stuff that he needs to do is he needs to play hard consistently. He needs to continue to bring, he's not like, he's not a bad kid at all. I, I don't mean that when I say this, but like he needs to bring a mature approach to his style of work and to his development night in and night out, day in, day out. That was something that NBA teams got a little bit worried with. And the, the drop in large part too, I mean, he went through an agency change during the pre-draft process. You know, he's now with Bill Duffy. I guess a lot of teams may or may not have had medical reports on him because his initial agency told him not to go to the combine, I guess. So it was a very convoluted deal yet last night with Robert Williams. Go to the um, combine, kids, unless you're DeAndre and Go to the combine. I, yeah, unless you're like a surefire top 10 pick. Even. Yeah. If you're a surefire top 10 pick, I'm like, okay, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Like Mikhail Bridges didn't go to the combine this year. That's Okay. That's the big thing. He's going to a situation in Boston where he should be 
surrounded by mature people, by people who will uh, have his back, by people who will continue to help him make the right decisions. Right, like, he's as long put as in that a, keeps happening, yeah. He's put in a circumstance to succeed. That doesn't mean that he will succeed. He's just they're giving him a good shot. Yeah, no, and the reward at number 27 far outweighs the risk of Robert Williams. Um, I, I would say really like around, for me, probably like 18. 17 really is where the reward starts to outweigh the risk for Robert Williams. So to get him at 27, fantastic. Just a fantastic get for Boston. I talked to a couple of people who think he won't make it to his fourth year option. but It's certainly I, possible. Absolutely yeah, possible. I have talked to people who think he's also going to be like an all-star. So um, great pick in my opinion. It was fantastic. So I'll open the floor to you for the second round, but if there's anybody in the first round we didn't talk about, feel free. Of just anybody, any pick, any situation that really stood out to you. Just a general thought. John Hammond. We got to talk about the yes. that is John Hammond. The brand is strong. <laughs> so strong. And not only Hammond, but Hammond and Weltman as a combination. Yes. They both do this constantly. John Hammond and Jeff Weltman have an affinity for players with long wingspans. Last night, the Magic had three picks. They took Muhammad Bamba, obviously six foot 11 with a 7'10 wingspan, so like plus 11. Uh, they took Melvin Frazier, who is six foot six, six four and a half without shoes on, seven foot two wingspan, so like a plus eight and a half, nine wingspan, plus nine and a half wingspan. Sorry, math is hard. And then Justin Jackson, who is I think like six seven with a seven three wingspan, so it was like plus seven and a half. Their three players combined for a plus twenty eight wingspan, so like plus nine wingspans on average with John Hammond's draft picks last night and Jeff Welton's draft picks. I shouldn't exclude him, but like just a legend. Just after the years in Milwaukee, after the years uh, where he's been, just an absolute legend for trolling us like this and giving us this content. Right after drafting Jonathan Isaac last year. Isaac isn't super long, weirdly. He's like... He, he feels super long. Like, the way he, he plays... He plays long. I'll, we'll, we'll count him as an honorary wingspan guy. He's an honorary wingspan guy, yes. But also, the guy they drafted in the second round last year, Wessel Wundu, six, I think, five and a half, six, six without shoes, seven, one wingspan. God, they're we're, they're going to need to get the right point guard. We'll see who that ends up being. Just somebody who has like who got pulled out by like a taffy stretcher as a kid. No, they'll, they'll yeah. be per- perfect for Orlando. And let's be let's be very clear on this. Orlando is going to score like forty points a game next year. <laughs> yeah, their their concept is is absolutely crazy with this team because, and I don't mean crazy necessarily in a bad way because it's a little bit crazy. They drafted all these guys that are going to take some time, but they just have so much from Rob Hennigan of, of all these contracts on the books. So it's kind of like they're in a transition, but it's more yeah. like trying to move like a cruise ship where you can't do it very quickly. So it all yeah. kind of doesn't really make much sense, but it'll piece together. And so that's why I find their offseason one of the more significant because I want to see if they can streamline this at all to move some of the pieces that don't really make as much sense they're not going to get a lot better but if they can just move some of those pieces and also to see whether they're no if i was them i'd be trying to get worse right yeah exactly like i'd be trying to move vooch i'd be trying to move evan fournier i'd be trying to move uh terrence ross i'd be trying to consider moving john simmons who is older than people think it's another one of those like uh, guys who when you come into the league when you're a little bit older sometimes it it hurts your flexibility but he's like 28 isn't he yeah i think so and so yeah i'd be trying to move off all that and then what, what i think is the question with them and you you like the cap stuff as well is 
are they willing to take on money for not this coming season, but for the following season in order to make that happen? Because I don't think there are going to be players in the summer of 2019 anyway. So if they can kind of make those, make all those moves and straight line, streamline all their cap stuff so that generally they're lined up with being really bad for this year, probably bad for next year, and then having a bunch of cap space, I think that could work out really, really well for them. Yeah. And I, I think that people often forget uh, and i can't believe i said a hashtag people forget they have historically when they've had cap space done pretty well in free agency so the lack of state income tax in florida the fact that people get to live in warm weather all very very valuable yeah i definitely think that's an underrated part of this i mean they got close to tim duncan years ago and they got got tracy mcgrady and grant hill I mean, and Grant Hill ended up not working out super well for them. But again, they got those players. And you think about how rare it is for high end free agents to really change teams that they were able to make that happen. And, you know, Miami obviously has their own proven track record and they're not there isn't quite the same. But it's more organizational majesty between those two teams. But and Miami and Orlando are two very different cities. But, yeah, I, I'm interested in watching that. Any other second rounders that really stood out to you? a good question let's take a look um, i'm assuming you want to talk about melton yeah melton was interesting i you know i <laughs> over the course of like the 24 hours post draft you get a lot of random phone calls from executives when you do this and it's all just like people you know, trying to you know talk about you know what did you hear almost happened what did uh you know what did you guys do? What did you think of our draft? And no one could explain the Melton thing. Everyone was just like, he just kind of fell. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't because of anything. He, it wasn't a situation where teams didn't like him. Teams expected him to go much earlier than he did. They thought like, from what I was told, late first, maybe like top seven picks in the second round. And he falls to 46 and no one could as far as i know really explain it you know maybe someone will explain it but maybe i just talked to the wrong people too maybe there is like some sort of weird medical concern but it's very interesting that he ends up going to a houston team that a could use more guard depth just in case a guy like a james harden or chris paul gets hurt and b is as analytically inclined as it is because if you talk to analytics people around the nba d'anthony melton was one of their like top seven guys coming into this draft they really really liked him and it's unsurprising that houston would take the plunge yeah he's i I watched a little bit of him at sc with his freshman year thought he was talented which just kind of went oh let's see we'll see what happens and then everything with this past year anybody else that really that you think like hey we should i know you like shake milton i know you like kata bates diop as well those are two guys that ended up falling into the second half of the second round yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that the first guy I should mention if we're talking second rounders is Melvin Frazier. I had him in the top 20 for my board. Yeah, I, th- I um, thought the Warriors, I was completely convinced the Warriors were going to take him. I think that they would have if Jacob Evans wasn't the pick. Jacob Evans was super high <laughs> for them from what I was told. He worked out there twice, if I remember correctly. Like, th- they they did their homework on Jacob Evans. But Melvin Frazier, six six seven two wingspan, he is probably the best versatile defender in the draft. High level, quick twitch athlete, just does a lot on that end. Shake Milton, six foot six, seven foot one wingspan, hit forty percent from three every season at SMU. That's the equation, man. <laughs> like if you can do that and you can also like have the ball skills to play point guard in a pretty good league. That says a lot about what I think your skill set is. You mentioned Kata Bates Diop. I moved him into the second round. Uh, I had him in like as a late first round value. 
But I moved him into the second round after talking to NBA teams. It was strange to me how often they would just be like, yeah, he's fine. Like, he's okay. And just kind of – it wasn't like waving him off, but it was the, – the response was muted every time I would talk about him. But he's 6'6", six, six, or no, 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 no. He's like six seven and a half with – out shoes he's like six eight and a half with shoes uh seven foot three wingspan eight eleven standing reach so like you might be able to play him at center great high release point on his jump shot hit 37 percent from three you good shooter like he can do a lot for you i think he's slow footed he's not a great athlete but you know at 48 i think that's a steal for a team that has to deal with the with the nemanja bielitsa contract situation this summer and then the last two teams I want to bring up are two teams who I think did a really great job accumulating depth. Detroit gets Kyrie Thomas and Bruce Brown, uh, both of whom great defensive guards, great length, pretty good athlete in Kyrie Thomas's case, great athlete in Bruce Brown's case. Kyrie is a little bit more skilled offensively. Bruce Brown, more of a lead guard offensive skill set, but not really quite good enough to do it yet. But I think that both of those guys can be rotation players, uh, maybe within the next two years for Detroit. I would actually expect Kyrie Thomas to be a rotation player next year for Detroit. And then the last team is Oklahoma City. They had two picks in the 50s. They end up taking home Kevin Hervey at 57, who I had at 41 on my board. Knee injuries are valid there, uh, concerning for sure. They end up taking Devin Hall at like number 52 or whatever pick they had there. 3 and D guy could maybe contribute, you know, a year or two down the road, maybe next year, maybe a year after. Great, great player at Virginia. Not a great athlete, but efficient shooter, smart defender. And then they, you know, after the draft is over, it gets announced that they bought Hamadou Diallo. And Hamadou Diallo fits just about everything that Sam Presti looks for in a prospect. He's a relatively good kid who is six foot five with a seven foot wingspan and all of the athleticism in the world. He figured it out a little bit defensively late in the season, but he still needs to really lock in on that end to, I think, be an NBA player. But, I like that Oklahoma City just really replenished the cupboard almost and picked up all of these guys that could eventually down the road be rotation players for them. Yeah, I'm excited to see a lot of those guys at Summer League because, I mean, I've seen Diallo in person. His athleticism is is really impressive. The, The first time I saw Hamadou Diallo, my jaw dropped. Like I saw him when he was a sophomore in high school and... He threw down, he jumped from like five feet outside of the like key from the baseline and threw down a left-handed ridiculous windmill. And I was like, who the is that guy? And found out and I was shocked. It was unbelievable. Were were you at Nations when he played against Zion? I don't remember it. He tried to dunk on Zion Williamson from like, I don't know how far away it was. It was, it was on the short list of the most ambitious dunk attempts I have ever seen in my life. He ended up missing the dunk, but got, got a foul, got a shooting foul from it. But I was just sitting there going, oh my God. Like I I thought somebody was, was going to get seriously injured just because both those guys went up so high. And, you know, we'll see what Zion ends up being. That'll be a conversation that you and I will probably have at length over the next 12 months. But, But, I mean, Diallo, he has the athleticism to be in any conversation that you have. It's just whether he can piece everything together. Yeah, no, I think that that's, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's about really all I've well, got I'll, I'll, on the 2018 I end, draft. I, I want to end this with one more thing. So Cody Westerlin tweeted this out right around the time oh, we started recording. No, oh, no. The Bulls brass conducted their press conference during the second round of the draft last night because they didn't want a third player for roster reasons. And they also thought there wasn't good depth past the late 20s in this draft. 
bad teams stay bad for a reason. Yeah, that, that's. T- I will say this: they are the. I, I've yet to talk to a team that was like, "Yeah, we think this draft's only like twenty-five deep." Like everyone thought, like you could get good players in the second round. It's bananas. It's <laughs> it's absolutely unacceptable. I think to be honest. It is. I mean, and there were plenty of four-year seniors they could have taken. I mean, if if that's what they wanted to do. But oh man, so yeah. I, I mean, it, it's it's unsurprising. Put it that way. It is unsurprising that that would be the case. And I feel like that you know we'll we'll see where these drafts go. But you, there is this kind of sense of good organizations and bad organizations, and we'll we'll see where that works out. And the, also, I think another big overarching storyline is we'll see how it works for the teams that are honest about where they are and where they're going versus the teams that are a little bit delusional. And I think yep. the teams that are honest about it did much better overall. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think I agree with you on that. The, the teams that have direction, like even Atlanta. A team that, again, at the top, I question some of their moves. I like that they have a direction. I like that Travis Schlank has a vision. I like the fact that he he seems like he knows what he's doing. Even if I don't agree with the picks, I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? I do, and I, I think Dallas is probably clear in that. They might not necessarily be in terms of the overarching thing of the team, but they know what they want. They know how to utilize it. And I think in some ways the biggest winner for me is just, is all of us, the fact that Luka Doncic, this player who is incredibly talented, the most accomplished European high school or teenager ever, ends up in a circumstance where I feel like we're going to he's going to get a fair shot. And so I think that's great yep. for him. I think that's great for Dallas. And I think that's great for basketball fans in general because he deserves that opportunity. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's as good a place as any to end. Thank you so much for all of your great work and for coming on, of course. Of course. Anytime, Danny. I'm glad to do it. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic. You can listen to him on the Game Theory podcast. He did a separate draft recap the night of there that you should definitely check out. And you can also, of course, follow him on Twitter. Lots and lots of people do. At Sam underscore Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love talking with him all the time. But draft night, I mean, a lot of different things to navigate. And I enjoy talking with Sam a lot also because we can get into some of the bigger pictures. Not just, hey, this guy's good. Hey, this guy's not good. Into team building. And we did a little bit of CBA stuff, as you know. Really enjoyed this episode. Now we are fully in off-season mode. I do not necessarily have a plan at this moment for next week's episode. That will, of course, be the final one before the real fun of July starts. Not that the draft is is anything less than great. I love the draft so much, but I don't know exactly where I want to go, partly because dunked on we're doing the massive mock-off season where three guests, including myself, represent the teams, and then Nate is the player agent, and that's a lot of fun. And so I'm kind of going to, we're going to record that over the next couple days, and then I'll figure out what I want to do from there, but that's kind of my primary focus right now. I'm actually doing research on my 10 teams. If you want to hear my thoughts on the draft other than this, you can check out Dunked On. You can also listen to Dunked On any other day. We're going to be doing some off-season previews next week as well, of course. And then my written thoughts are at Real GM along my annual draft review. It was actually the 10th time I did it, which is pretty awesome. That started way back in 2009. And I also wrote a series of pieces related to the draft at Real GM for thing, what I look for when I'm going through prospects. It's something I thought of doing a couple of years ago and really put the time in. You can also hear an audio version of it, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. That's called, we call it Danny Storytime. I go through them for that. 
Also, my off-season previews in mass are up at The Athletic. You can check all those out. I did all 30 teams. They're all up now. The Lakers were the last one to go up, and the Warriors went up also this week. So you can check any of them out. They're all there. And they had, there's a dedicated page. Most of the uh, the pieces have a link to that in it. Not every single one, but most of them do. You can also check out my author page, of course, for all that kind of stuff. If you want to support this show, there are so many different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, wherever you're choosing. You can subscribe. You can download every episode. Great for a show like this that comes out at one time a week, but that time can change dramatically. You can also fill out that survey, podcast1.com slash my survey or podcast1.com and click on the survey banner. Great way to support Real Jam Radio. Takes less than five minutes, completely anonymous, gives us data that we can take to our advertisers and say, hey, this is who's listening to our show. And it's massive for me, so I really do appreciate it. The most important thing for this or any other podcast that has it that you can do is you can check out our advertisers. Hymns, wellness brand for men. Go to forhims.com slash real. $5 trial month while supplies last. Awesome. Very important to be proactive with hair management. True car, great place to buy new and used cars. And as I said, the survey. So those are all big things you can do. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Daniel Rue, NBA at gmail.com at Daniel Rue as well. Not nearly as good. Not nearly as good. And if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I might not respond. I try to, but I, I, you know, I will always read it because it's, it's very, very important to me. And if that's why I say, if you take the time to write it, I will read it. That is a clear sign that I have rambled for way too long here. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars. Love is in the air. And you know who really deserves some extra love? You, that's who. So treat yourself to a mental pick-me-up with Best Fiends. Unwind with thousands of brain-tickling levels and tons of cute collectible characters. Because even in the shortest month, you deserve all the me time you can get. Ready to boost your brain power? Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Best Fiends.